have another conversation with you about some of the stories that matter. Folks, I want to take a moment uh, to just reflect on the passing of Colin Powell. Uh, He was a giant among many of the men that he stood with. He was the first black secretary of state, a retired four-star general. He served his country as both a soldier and a diplomat. He died from complications related to COVID-19. That that last part hurts, uh, that we've lost another giant to COVID-19. He was 84 years old. Colin Powell once said, a dream doesn't become reality through magic. It takes sweat, determination, and hard work. We can't sit around waiting for Superman or Superwoman to come save the day. He was from the Bronx, New York. He said he left the Bronx, but the Bronx never left him. I want to reflect on his legacy. I will have my panel uh, to do just a full look at the news, but before I start with my panel, I want to go to Senator Ben Cardin and hear from him about the passing of Secretary of State uh, Colin Powell. Senator Cardin, how are you, sir? Well, it's good to be with you. Uh, We've lost a real giant, a real leader in America, a person who really loved our country and always wanted to do right by our country, and a great soldier, a great diplomat, incredible leader. Let me ask you, as we're starting to understand the impact of his legacy, what are some of the things that you would point out that will stand large long after he's gone? Well, he was, he was a great soldier. Uh, he loved the military. He took the oath of office uh, as a soldier and defended our freedom, but then became a leader in transforming our uh, military to meet the current challenges to America. Uh, and that's not an easy task. It's not an easy task to, to change the mentality uh, of leadership in the Defense Department to recognize that they had to change their ways. And always recognizing that our country uh, has a civilian leadership, not a military leadership. And he made that transition in such a dignified way, consistent with the best traditions of America. So I, I think it was really transforming the military and establishing the right balance between our elected leaders and our military leaders. Now, former Secretary of State Colin Powell, he served under Jimmy Carter as assistant to the Deputy State of Defense, Secretary of Energy. He served under President George H.W. Bush. He also served under Ronald Reagan as a national security advisor. And he broke with his party very publicly when he endorsed Barack Obama. Uh, On a personal level, what kind of of person was he when you had a chance to meet with him? Well, he, he, was an, he was an extraordinary leader. He, uh, his observations were so important that presidents of both parties wanted to have his, his advice, wanted to know his views. Uh, his loyalty was not to a political party. His loyalty was to the Constitution in our country. And uh, he was uh, an experienced soldier and diplomat and knew how to handle the balance between our elected leaders and our military leaders. So I think what's special about him is that he could tell truth to power. He was not bound by a partisan uh, agenda, and he recognized that America's strength was in our values and in our Constitution, and he protected that at at all costs. Now, my last question to you, and thank you so much for just taking the time to, to meet with us. When I look at his record, one of the things that just astonishes me is how often he would come out publicly and admit when he was wrong about something, like when he reversed his stance on gays and lesbians serving in the military. What can politicians learn from Colin Powell, who came out and said, you know, I was wrong then, and here's where I stand today? You're exactly right about that. I mean, his views changed as American views have changed. But he relied upon our military intelligence information when he presented the case before the United Nations in regards to Iraq. He later admitted that was wrong, that the information was wrong and his presentations were wrong. Even though he was relying on other people's information, he took responsibility for that mistake. And that's what a real leader does. He doesn't try to avoid 
uh, the responsibility when you do something which is not accurate. You, you uh, own up to it, acknowledge it, learn from it, and move on. And that's what uh, General Powell did. Thank you so much, Senator Ben Cardin, for just chiming in on our special show, looking at the life and legacy of former Secretary of State, four-star General Colin Powell. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you. And so, folks, I open it up now to our panel of reporters and of uh, political scientists to talk with us about Colin Powell, but also about what's happening in the country today. I'm joined now by Trey Lewis, a freelance writer based in Texas. Hey, Trey, welcome back to the show. Hey, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Dr. Sharon Wright Austin, professor from the University of Florida. Hey, Dr. Austin, thanks for coming back. Oh, thank you. Always a pleasure. Always. And then Denise Clay, reporter, columnist, editor, the Philadelphia Sunday Sun, a columnist for the Philadelphia Magazine, an everyday people columnist, the Philadelphia Public Record, who has the longest introduction here. How you doing, Denise? Mm -hmm. Thanks for coming back. I'm good, and, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, Denise, I'm just going to come to you first. So we're talking about Colin Powell, uh, and we're talking about his life and his legacy. So I want to begin with, with some of the things that, that, that I really appreciated about him. And, and the main one, of course, is that he broke with the insurrection with the Republicans. He's like, look, I no longer consider myself a Republican, given what happened on January 6th. Can you talk about uh, Colin Powell's, the impact he had within the African-American community? Well, first of all, um, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm a military brat. Ah, okay. So because of that, there's a certain reverence that we have for particularly black people who who managed to get as high as he did. I mean, you... You know, for my father to see the first black chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that was a big deal for him because it wasn't something he ever saw, he ever thought would have happened, you know, based on his own military career. But Colin Powell's legacy is complicated within the African American community. And while, and when I say complicated, I mean, while on the one hand we were proud of him because he did manage to achieve some things that, you know, to open some doors that were traditionally closed to us in terms of being the first black chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, in terms of being Secretary of State and different things. There were also some things that we weren't so proud of, like his being, his allowing himself to be the face of the war in Iraq, a war that was found out to be started out under false pretenses. Right. And and his reputation, not only just in the black community, but in the world at large, took a really big hit after that. And, you know, in a way, he resurrected some, you know, picked up some of that when he decided to go against the Republican Party and endorse Barack Obama back in 2008. But his legacy is complicated. And the Republicans... There was a joke that Chris Rock told about something else, but it applied to Colin Powell, which is, and it was something about why would you, you know, be on a ticket with someone you could be? And that's mm. what no one could understand about Colin Powell. He really had no, he, there was really no need for him to align himself with a whole lot of Republican politicians because if he had decided to run for president as a Republican, just being his authentic self, he could have beaten all of those guys. But for some reason he didn't, and it really didn't surprise a lot of people when he decided after January 6th that he was done with the party because at, the, at his core, he was a patriot. Mm. And he didn't see what they did as patriotic. I'm glad you put that out there. I want to go to Trey because Trey doesn't have much time with us. I know you only have a few minutes, Trey, so I appreciate you making the time. But I want to have you talk a bit about Colin Powell's legacy, uh, where it stands, what, what was his impact in Texas. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I, I'll go two. I'll go two routes. As a former, um, as a former member of the military myself in the Army, I commend him for uh, for going the route, meaning that he started as, as an enlistment. Uh, went to ROTC and spent almost 40 years in the military. Um, black or white, that's, tr- that's tremendous. And in particularly being a black man in that time period, in that contention time period in the military, where racism was very much a high. It was it's very commendable that he did, that he stayed the course. 
I think it's important to um, uh, to lament, even despite his political um, affiliations or some of his political wrongdoings. And and speaking of that, it kind of segues into my um, my second point is that you know his political failures were immense. I mean, a preemptive uh, invasion of another country was never done in American history before Iraq of that scale and magnitude. And um, he was he was the face of it. And the reason why he was the face of it was because he was the trusted person of that administration. We didn't trust Bush. We didn't trust Rumsfeld and all them other people. But most of the world trusted Colin Powell. He was uh, seen as being pragmatic and being sensible. And so him uh, giving the final okay with that um, terrible war uh, really was bad. But he redeemed himself, I believe. Not redeemed himself in full, but I mean, I think that he still showed that, hey, I made a mistake, but I endorsed Barack Obama years later. I did it again. Um, and then he, in his final political years, he completely disavowed himself with the main factions of the Republican Party. So uh, that's important to show that it's okay to um, be a face of a wrong thing and then also redeem yourself, so to speak, uh, years later um, and doing another and doing actual right thing. So I think it's important to, to talk about, you know, what he did in 2003. Uh, we all remember that, 2002-2003. Uh, we all remember the, um, the U.N. conference. Um, however, we also have to remember his editorials about endorsing Obama twice and his editorials about the dangers of Trump. Um, and so we, need to, we also need to address that. Well, let me ask you, uh, the, the question that people have, have often wondered, why didn't he run? He could have beat um, Hillary Clinton. I'm not sure if he would have you know, been able to beat Barack Obama, uh, but why do you think he didn't run? I think, you know, sometimes when it comes to these things, is that it's sometimes we just miss a very simple thing. He might just not want it. You know, we, we, we look at, you know, I'm a big sports fan. We look at a guy right now who is almost about to not play because of a vaccine, Kyrie Irving, squandering millions of dollars. And we're like, why is he doing this? And it's like, well, maybe he really doesn't want to play basketball that much as we think. And maybe he just didn't want to be president. You know, it, 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 obviously he would have won his party. Um, he might even won the entire general election. But maybe he, he and his wife just, maybe just didn't want to do it. I don't know. Um, I think he would have been a great person in that office because of who he is. Um, but he might not just want the job. Well, Trey Lewis, I thank you so much for chiming in. I know you have to go. You're on assignment. We really appreciate you. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate always. I appreciate the invite, and you enjoy the rest of your afternoon, okay? Thank you so much. So then, Doc, right. Dr. Austin and, and Ms. Murray, so let's jump into it. Uh, I want to come to you, Dr. Austin, because we need to get into beginning to unpack uh, Colin Powell's policies, and I know that's something that, that you can do for us. Like we've been talking in generalities about how you know his, his legacy is complicated, but let's start getting into the specifics. So he was sworn in January 26, 2001. That's the same year that 9-11 happened, later that year. And so by the time you got to 2003, he's now making the case against Iraq under UN Resolution 1441, talking about the weapons of mass destruction. Let's begin there in terms of, of how his legacy began to get formed with that particular stance and the fact that they made the choice and he said yes, I'm not sure he could have said no, to making him the face of this. Right. Even though Colin Powell had been involved in, in the military, I guess even since before Vietnam, and he served in Vietnam, he's won two Purple Hearts. I think the first time the nation really found out about him and he became a household name, was in 1990 with Operation Desert Storm and the Persian Gulf War against Iraq that took place then. And I think a lot of the reason that he became, I guess, a well-known person was because CNN uh, had just really become influential, and so you had this 24-hour news channel that was showing him over and over again, actually showing footage from Operation Desert Storm. But he promoted something called the Powell Doctrine, which said that military force should only be used when necessary, and that was something that he believed in. But some people later saw him as being a hypocrite, because with the war against Iraq, as you said, at first he opposed it, but then later on he gave a speech appearing before the United Nations in 2003, and he spoke in favor of going to war uh, in Iraq, and he later even regretted having done that, because as, as many people remember, um, it was said that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, and it was later found that there was absolutely no truth to that. And some people even believe that he was thrown under the bush by George W. Bush, because he was forced to resign shortly after 
Bush was reelected in 2004, and that's something that a lot of people don't know about him. So I think one of your uh, guests earlier said that he has a complicated legacy in the black community. That definitely is true, because I just want to talk about that kind of a little bit, because I remember watching the Oprah Winfrey show many years ago. Um, Spike Lee was a guest on the show, and Oprah had uh, criticized Spike for having criticized uh, Colin Powell, because she was saying that how can you say that about him because he is a person who has done well, he's you know, achieved a lot, he's a role model. And Spike Lee said that uh, no African-American who's done well under the Reagan administration and George H.W. Bush administration should be admired. There's got to be something about this person that, that we shouldn't trust in the black community. And at first, that's what some people believed about him because he had done well even dating back to Richard Nixon when he was a White House fellow and then later under Republican administrations, especially under President Reagan, who was very unpopular with African Americans. I think people who are a little bit older kind of remember that, but members of the younger generation may not really even know that. And so I think it's sort of a, a, a very positive legacy because, as your other guest just said, he redeemed himself. But he was someone who was the face of the war against Iraq, which was something originally that he had opposed. And so then later, after uh, people started to criticize George W. Bush, um, because no weapons of mass destruction were found, a lot of people believed that Bush pretty much pointed the finger at uh, Colin Powell and said that this is the person that should take the blame, and he later resigned. And then I'm sure you're going to talk a little bit more later about the way he changed from being a Republican to a Democrat. And so he has a, a very complex legacy, but nevertheless, he was a man of integrity, and he is someone who, regardless of whatever his faults were, he paved the way even for the current Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Daniels, and other people who've excelled in the military to hold positions that African Americans traditionally were, were excluded from. Now, Denise, I want to come back to you because when he, uh, when it was announced in November 2004 at the White House, as Bush mm-hmm. had accepted his letter mm-hmm. of resignation, it paid, opened up the way for Condoleezza Rice to come in, mm-hmm. which I'm thinking... I'm not sure how much of a switch that was. I mean, I know Condoleezza Rice has a Ph.D. in foreign policy, so brought a different kind of sensibility than somebody who's a four-star general. But it didn't seem to change the direction of the Bush administration. No, but basically you went from someone who who was leading this effort that had actually gone to war to someone who hadn't. Mm. And what what you started to learn about particularly your most vocal, hawkish Republicans um, throughout that time, as you could tell who went to war and who didn't. Because most people who have been to war will tell you that no one wants to go to war. So when you meet people like this who are blatantly advocating for war, you can tell it's something they've never had to actually do. And that's kind of what it was with Condoleezza Rice. I'm like, okay, you know, you've never had to stand at the bus station and watch your father get on a bus and had it, knowing that he's going to go somewhere where people are going to be shooting at it. And until you have that experience, you know, you, you kind of make the kind of decisions that the Bush administration ultimately did when it came to the war in Iraq. So now, with, with that in mind, uh, Dr. Austin, Condoleezza Rice, who it, by all intents was is complicated as well, but mm-hmm. I never felt that she was critiqued and maybe even pushed aside by the black community in the same way that Colin Powell was. Well, I would say, I, well, I would agree that she, she wasn't pushed aside as much, but she was critiqued. Because I think, um, you know, we have to keep in mind that even she had her, her issue with racism. I remember once she was, um, I guess, a delegate to something dealing with Russia, and she spoke fluent Russian, and she tried to go, and the, the security guards wouldn't let her in because she was a black woman. And so, you know, she is someone who also has a complicated legacy. On one hand, I think a lot of it is because both of them were Republicans, and both of them excelled in the Republican Party. But I think, in a way, she was critiqued to some extent because she's a woman. I even remember people saying things about her hair. 
you know, even some things that were kind of gendered criticisms of, oh, why does she wear her hair like that? I mean, which really was, I guess, was silly, which only women have to deal with that type of thing, I guess, especially black women. But again, she didn't have the kind of military experience that she had, but that doesn't mean that she wasn't qualified to be Secretary of State. But I would say that she wasn't probably rejected as much. And the reason was because Colin Powell was pretty much the face of Desert Storm. I remember even, uh, I was in school at the time in 1990, and I remember watching him give the press conferences. And I even remember on Saturday Night Live, they had a skit of him giving these press conferences and not really giving very much information. But because he was the face of these wars and because of his role in the war in, of, in Iraq, I think people definitely um, criticized him more. But as far as the critiquing, I think maybe it was it was kind of equal in that sense. Denise, let me ask you. Uh, there, there seems like there sometimes in the, within the black community that there are certain people that are canceled out of our community. Colin Powell, even though I have always heard amazing things about him and spoke highly of him, but I remember the criticism on the ground. I remember the criticism on the ground of of Clarence Thomas, which continues. And I'm not saying it's warranted or not. I'm just talking about the ways in which we, we do cancel people out. And Colin Powell was one. I'm not sure if even the endorsement of Barack Obama redeemed him. Well, you know, the saying goes that you can be my color but not my kind. Mm-hmm. And for a lot, a lot of people in the black community... With very few exceptions, being a Republican kind of cancels you out because you because the question that gets asked is, how can you be a part of a group of people that has made it its mission, at least on an appearance platform, to make the lives of your community that much harder? What they don't understand is that a lot of people, and I learned this when I was covering um, the Republican National Convention, um, a lot of the black people that you see that are in the Republican Party or who used to be very active in the Republican Party were active because their parents remembered when the party was a party where the civil rights movement was was included. They remember that Lincoln freed the slaves. They remember that there were Republicans that voted for the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act. They remember all of that. But what the reason why a lot of these folks tend to be canceled out, despite the fact they've made some pretty decent achievements in a party that hasn't always been amenable to them, just ask Michael Steele, um, is that the party of Lincoln and the current Republican Party are two entirely different entities. And part of the reason why black people tend to shy away from folks like Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice and Michael Steele and such is because we don't understand how a party that can include the Proud Boys, that can include David Duke, that can include Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. is a party that you can support without saying anything about those issues, and they never said anything about the blatant the blatant racism within the Republican Party. I think that if any of them had said this is wrong, we need to do something about it, and really pushed to get the racism out, there wouldn't have been that cancellation. But they didn't really, and because of that, people were like, "Okay, if you're not saying anything against it." You must think it's okay. Well, then, you know, Denise, we're going to hold it here for just a second. Denise Clay Murray, Dr. Sharon Wright Austin, when we come back, I want to use this moment, this idea of canceling out, to spend some time also talking about you know, the legacy of, of, of uh, Clarence Thomas. I want to talk about him. I want to talk about where do we go from here. I want to talk about the, the lack of leaders that people talk about in the black community. We have a lot more to talk about when we come back from the break. Stay with us.
joined by our panel here, Denise Clay Austin, I'm sorry, Denise Clay, who is a reporter, columnist, and editor of the Philadelphia Sunday Sun, and Dr. Sharon Wright Austin, professor from the University of Florida. Thank you so much for staying with us. We want to go Thank ahead. You. Yes, we want to open the phone lines 410-319-8888. Folks, we're going to spend some time expanding and talking about stories that are happening around the country. We want to get into some news as well as reflecting, of course, on the life and legacy of Colin Powell. Dr. Austin, I want to come to you. In thinking about canceling out African Americans and building on what Denise talked about, I'm thinking about Clarence Thomas. So we know that Clarence Thomas has been canceled for a lot of reasons, right? We can go back to Anita Hill, but also the way in which he votes so conservatively uh, while since he sits on the Supreme Court. But also the fact that when you go into the African-American History Museum, here you have the second African-American to become a Supreme Court justice, and he has a very small kind of display at the museum. Like, he's been diminished in a lot of capacities. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what that means for us going forward and whether it's warranted? Well, I think there's, a, there's definitely a big difference between Colin Powell and Clarence Thomas, first of all, because even though Colin Powell hasn't spoken out on racism in the way I guess that people would have liked for him to, and the same is true with Condoleezza Rice, he has at times uh, criticized Republicans. Uh, you mentioned after the insurrection uh, earlier this year, he admitted that he no longer is a, a Republican, and there are a lot of other things that he's done that have been positive. Clarence Thomas, on the other hand, is someone that has been canceled because his views consistently are always, as some people would say, anti-black, because of his, not only the opinions that he has expressed publicly, but also especially because of his rulings since he's been on the court and even before then. Um, and then also with Clarence Thomas, some people even would have argued and can still argue even to this day that he was never qualified to be on the court in the first place. And the only reason he was chosen to be the person who came in, uh, after Thurgood Marshall retired was because he was black and also because he was a black conservative. He had only been a federal judge for about 18 months before he even uh, joined the, the U.S. Supreme Court when he was nominated by George H.W. Bush. So there are a lot of differences. Colin Powell was overly qualified. Clarence Thomas arguably wasn't. So he has been canceled because a lot of his uh, court rulings and his opinions over the years have consistently been hostile to the black community. So in that sense, with Colin Powell, I think people just didn't really trust him because he was Republican and because also as some things that we've already talked about. But with Clarence Thomas, for a number of years and even to this day, he has yet to redeem himself with the black community because of the opinions and also because of his actions as well. And I don't think he ever will, Denise. I think Clarence Thomas, in the position that he is, he is a destructive force against the black community. His rulings will will set life on an awkward path for black folks and brown folks and economically challenged folks. You're talking for years to come. Well, and yeah, because he's a lifetime appointee. Yes. And, and and the thing is, you, you he kind of makes you wonder about the Supreme Court in a lot of ways. The biggest being his wife is one of the founders of the Tea Party. Yes. She's financed one of the founders of the Tea Party in Virginia. She fi she financed a couple of buses for the January sixth insurrection and and, and and different things. And if this were a judge in any in any other court, he would be looking at, you know, getting kicked out of court. But the Supreme Court is a lifetime appointment, and that's one of the reforms that people are looking at right now. Should it be a lifetime appointment? Um, should there be more justices? And, you know, the thing is, Clarence Thomas, when he was appointed, he was seen by a lot of people as a sarcastic appointment. And, and what do I mean by that? George H.W. Bush wanted to put a black person on the court to replace the black person on the court, who was the late Thurgood Marshall. And even Thurgood Marshall himself said, don't just put somebody black on the court, put somebody on the court who's actually good. And they didn't do that. And it's been reflected not, not necessarily in Thomas's conservatism, but his lack of his, his lack of um, inquisitiveness, his lack of wanting to, you know, know things as part of decisions, 
the fact that for a while there there was a 10-year stretch where he might have asked maybe five questions, and there were a whole bunch of rulings that came out of the court at that time. So, you know, that whole appointment was something that left a lot of people scratching their heads because, as the professor noted, he was so grotesquely un- underqualified. But, but with that in mind, um, you know, since he was that kind of appointee, and I heard that as well, it was just really sarcastic. It was just kind of in your face that he was as far to the right of Thurgood Marshall as, if, as almost as if they just cherry-picked someone who was the opposite Thurgood Marshall, which I do believe was part of it. But, but Dr. Austin, can you speak a little bit about what's happening in the Supreme Court? Do you think we can get to a point where we can hold them more accountable by not giving them this reward at 40-something and 50-something years old of a lifetime appointment to potentially shape policy that may well last for 100 years? Well, I think that is something that has been debated for many years. And even with the Biden administration during the recent uh, his campaign, he was accused of wanting to pack the court, to come up with ways to try to get some of those justices who've been on there for a long period of time, like Clarence Thomas, to leave the court or maybe even expanding the number of justices from nine to maybe having more than nine justices. And it was, he was accused of wanting to, to do that and also to want, to wanting to do it because that way he would be able to appoint people to the court that would have views that were similar to his and of liberal Democrats. But, I mean, you're right. I think that there definitely should be some type of term limit on uh, people who are on the court, but actually, but there isn't one. And that's something that's been debated for many years. As a matter of fact, even when George uh, Herbert Walker Bush um, appointed, or when he nominated Clarence Thomas to serve on the court, it was said that he nominated him not only because he was black, he was ultra-conservative, but also he was only 43 years old. Um, and he's been on the court since 1991 for 30 years now, um, and so I think, you know, who knows how, how much longer the man is going to live. But nevertheless, that's not an issue just with Justice Thomas, but with other justices as well, when there is no limit on the number of years they can serve, even with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I even remember when Thurgood Marshall was still on the court, when he had started to have health problems, when he was of an advanced age, and people were trying to force him off the court. They were trying to force Ruth Bader Ginsburg off the court. The same even was true with Antolin Scalia. They were trying to force him off the court. Um, and so over the years, there have been situations when people have been of an advanced age and when they've had health problems that people have encouraged them to try to step down. But there really isn't anything as of this day that we can do because it's a lifetime appointment. And once you're on the court, you're there until you either decide to step down or until you die. And that's just the way it is. See, that, that's where the problem is. I want to move now, um, Denise. I want to talk about some of the other stories that are making its way around the country. But let me go to Wesley from Reisterstown, Maryland, who wants to chime in. Wesley, how are you? Oh, fine, fine. And you? Um, well, thank you. I'll put Cohen in a different category than Ben Carson or Clarence Thomas. But you have to understand, Clarence Thomas supports, uh, like, transgender rights because um, his wife is transgender, right? I have no idea about. Okay, so what, what, what does that have uh, no. to do with, with what we're talking about? I mean, I just I want to kind of stay on topic. So you don't you don't put Colin Powell in the same category as Clarence Thomas or Ben Carson in terms of their politics. Is it be, is it because he redeemed himself by supporting Barack Obama? No, here's, here's my thing. Here's my thing. I respect. Well, of course, I was in the service. I respect Colin. Okay. But he and Ben Carson, in my opinion, of course, people can do what they want to do. You can't, you can't force somebody to retire off the Supreme Court. It's their decision, okay? But in my eyes, in, in my opinion is that Colin Powell and Ben Carson would have been better off to retire from what they were doing and then go on about their business rather than try to uh, suck up to Republicans to get favor. That's the only thing. But... It's their decision. It's not my decision. But like I say, Colin, to me, is in a little different category than uh, Ben Carson. At least he recognized the situation. And, 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 and uh, let me say this to you. I think the black community has every right to cancel whoever they want to cancel. 
And that includes Stacey Dash, if she can hear me. Okay. Thank, okay. thank you so much, She can't much, come that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Dr. Austin, I come back to you uh, <laughs> in thinking about something that Colin Powell said. Colin Powell, when he made the decision in 1996 not to run for president, at that time they said he had a 73% favorable rating. Uh, in the Gallup polls. Like, he was showing him leading Bill Clinton right up until the November announcement that he wouldn't run. But he said, I believe I can help the Lincoln, the party of Lincoln move once again close to the spirit of Lincoln. I don't think he was able to accomplish that. Well, I think we know that he wasn't able to accomplish that. But in hearing him say things like that, I remember reading his book many years ago, but I think the reason he really chose not to run was because his wife didn't want him to. Because I remember even reading a quote from her many years ago, and she was saying that everybody talks about how much everybody loves Colin Powell, but she talked about the hate mail that they received when it was rumored that he was going to run for president. Um, But I, I guess, I mean, we don't really know exactly why he didn't run, but it's been said that maybe that was the reason. But, no, he definitely has not moved the Republican Party anywhere because he was a moderate Republican, um, and now the party has gotten even worse, and he even criticized them. Even before this year with the insurrection that took place in January, he's criticized the Republican Party for moving too far to the right and even referred to them as quote-unquote crazies and different things. He even criticized uh, Sarah Palin as the choice of the running mate of John McCain. He endorsed Barack Obama over John McCain. So, I mean, he really has, I think, tried to maybe be the modern Republican, but it, you know, it, it hasn't worked because we see the state of the Republican Party now, and especially even looking ahead, um, as I'm sure we're going to talk about on your show, to 2024 with the upcoming presidential election in a few years, we know that Donald Trump's going to run again, and we're just uh, bracing ourselves to see just how ugly it's going to be this time around. But when I think of Colin Powell, I compare him to Jackie Robinson, because I remember um, in my class, uh, African-American politics, we talked about last semester, Jackie Robinson, a Republican um, and he was someone who was trying to do the same things that Colin Powell was trying to do, trying to be a liberal or moderate Republican, pro-civil rights, and trying to get other Republicans to use that same platform. But they uh, endorsed uh, Barry Goldwater in 1964, and that was a big disappointment to Jackie Robinson. So it seems like there's always an African-American that's trying to uh, remain in the party and trying to be a moderate Republican and trying to encourage other Republicans to agree with them. But they always tend to run into the same, um, it's almost like running into a brick wall. They all tend to have the same type of problem. Now, let, me, let me ask you this, Dr. Oss. I want to come back to you with, with you know, 1996. So, you know, he received a lot of hate mail. And I also heard, coming out of D.C., I heard that his wife did not want him to run. Like, that level of public scrutiny was not something that, that she wanted. And I understand that, because you have to give up a lot to be the spouse of someone who runs for and maybe eventually becomes president. Was America ready for a black president in 1996? I mean, think about that time. Well, I think um, America was probably never ready for a black president, even when we finally got one in 2008. But um, I think that I, I think that most people in politics don't think about what America is ready for. People who are trailblazers like Colin Powell, or Barack Obama, or others who've been the first in their position, who've been told when they plan to to accomplish something, to run for something, to achieve something, that you'll never win because a black person has never held that position. America is not ready. I think they sort of just ignore that. And that's why there have been so many firsts and continue to be so many firsts in black communities. Because if you think about what America is ready for or when America is ready for something, you'll never run for anything because America is never going to be ready for a black person to do certain things. We just have to go in and just do it. I agree with that. I agree. Let's go to Robert from Baltimore. Robert, how are you? Hello? Hello. Thank you for calling, Robert. Yeah, you got good discussion. Uh, I, I think uh, my opinion of, uh, of Colin Powell, he, he, he's a really uh, role model and hero within the black community. I, I don't see how you could counsel him out. When he went forward off the back of Chappie and Benjamin O. Davis, who were four-star generals, and he was um, very respectful towards the black community. I don't think you can call uh, Spike Lee up and ask him if he's the Uncle Tom anymore, because I think Colin Powell puts some integrity 
back in the life of uh, Spike Lee when he visited him about those comments. So, yeah, um, um, Colin Powell, he, he did pretty good for himself, man. He, to me, Emma Schwartzoff, and I had another, um, Emma Schwartzoff was the baddest two gentlemen I ever seen perform. Now, they're the only gentlemen during wartime that we actually got to see apply their uh, trade. And they was a killing machine. That's what they were. And, uh, and they went over there and that's what they did. And, but they, they did it, man. Uh, nobody could criticize them, man. They got that war gun and they, they went and did what he did. And, uh, Mr. Powell, uh, uh, General Powell was very respective, uh, uh, about his position and his legacy and the those who went before. And that's all I can say. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Robert. Well, Denise, I'll come back to you because Colin Powell said, you know, in the latter part of his life, he said, you know, I'm not a fellow of anything right now. I'm just a citizen who has voted Republican, voted Democrat throughout my entire life. And right now I'm just watching my country and not concerned with parties. Mm-hmm. My question, Denise, is how does this further the agenda within the black community? I'm not sure we can afford to just kind of watch the country and not be concerned with parties. Well, it, it we can't. You're right about that. But, you know, we have to remember the words of Frederick Douglass. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has. It never will. And what, what the black community first has to be able to say is this is what we want. We're not tolerating anything less. And if you want our votes, this is what you have to give us. But by the same token... We also have to recognize that there is only one group of people, or at least there appears to only be one group of people, that's really trying to not bring us back to a place where, you know, things were really, really, really horrendous. And the thing is, if we're going to try third parties, which I keep hearing a lot about, and we're even talking about that here in Philadelphia, they need to start working toward, you know, doing what they want to do right now and not just wait for the presidential race because you get no name recognition that way and all you do is pull away votes from the people who could possibly help you. Third party, Dr. Austin, I mean, I think, you know, you and I have had this conversation before. Is there really a space for third parties? We've become so two-party dominant that it's hard to have the kind of space, the kind of momentum you would need to put on a viable campaign as a third-party candidate for the president of the United States. Right. As a matter of fact, I mean, my next research project that I'm just now starting on is looking at black women in the presidency and looking at black women who've either been uh, a vice presidential candidate or a presidential candidate throughout history. And most of them overwhelmingly have been independents who've been in third parties. And so I think that even if a person who's running for an office, whether it be president or, or anything else, is running as a, uh, a representative of a, of a third party, of an independent party, even if they don't, don't win or even if they don't think that they can win, they run simply because they're trying to achieve something. In the case of black women who run for president, they've tried to address civil rights in some way or get attention to a certain issue that they were con- uh, concerned with. Or they were running uh, during the time of, I guess, legalized segregation, and they were trying to change things in American society and break, break down barriers. And so I think that, um, you know, even though some people would just dismiss third parties, at some point in the future, the African-American community and other communities of people who are, are pretty much disadvantaged for the most part are going to have to start thinking about independent politics more uh, and looking at that more closely. Because, you know, we've relied on the Democratic Party over the years, and you and I have had this discussion several times on your show. Um, and then the Republican Party, it's almost as if they don't want us. And when you do see African-American Republican uh, candidates and who represent the Republican Party, they're not like Colin Powell. They're not these people of integrity. They tend to be people who are, you could even argue, almost like buffoons of some, of some kind, people like the, the Clarence Thomases and other types of people. And so I think we're going to have to start looking at independent politics, even if it means that we may not necessarily win, but mm-hmm. at least it'll bring attention to some of the issues that we're concerned with in our communities. Can I just yeah, interject real quick? Um, we also have to get past 
the point where women aren't seen as automatically incapable of leading Mm. because that has hurt a lot of the female candidates, particularly in third parties. And it also would help if we focus more on local and state races before we decide to run for president as third party. Absolutely. Because local and state races are where you have the best chance. Philadelphia, for example, we have a member of the Working Families Party on our city council. And that's a, that was a historic first. And that's because they decided they were going to focus on just Philadelphia, and now they're taking their um, focus statewide. If you, could, if you work at the local level to get the credibility, by the, time you're, by the time you have someone that you want to put up as president or as a senator or as a congressperson, they've, you've already got you know, the credibility. And let's face it, black, but with what black people in particular are dealing with right now, we don't necessarily have the luxury of taking you at your word that you're going to be able to do something. We need to know what the plan is, because there's too much riding on things for us. Mm, that's actually a really good point that you just put out there, uh, Denise. And that's what I was thinking about when Dr. Austin said, you know, there's a chance we won't win. But it is putting our agenda out there. That is always the pushback, Dr. Austin, about people voting for third-party candidates. And there have been some very strong candidates. They're like, well, no, we can't afford to throw the vote away. So we have to keep going back into the two-party model because we can't throw our vote away. That is a real fear that people have, particularly if we look forward to 2024, Dr. Austin. And so let's just assume uh, it's going to be Trump on the Republican side. That that focus on who goes in as a Democratic candidate is something that people are going to have to rally around. And they're not going to be willing to take the stand for a third party, knowing that they split the vote. Then here comes Donald Trump again. Right. And that's the problem, I think, just not just with presidential elections, but that usually is the case. There usually is someone who's running who's sort of like a villain to the black community. And the belief is that if we vote for an independent candidate for the third party candidate, that's going to take away from the candidate who can beat the villain. And especially in 2024, most of the African-Americans I know, 99.9% of them, do not want Donald Trump to be president of the United States again. And even a significant number of people of other races who are white, Hispanic, Latino, um, uh, Asian, I think a lot of people just do not want him back in office. And they know that he remains popular. He remains powerful. He still has um, a lot of appeal with his base. And there are people in his base who can't wait to try to put him back in there. And so now if there is a discussion about an independent presidential candidate running, if the Democratic candidate is someone that we don't want to run or we don't think can beat Donald Trump, and if we then try to support a third-party candidate, the argument is going to be that, well, you pretty much are just handing the presidency over to Donald Trump, making it easy for him to win. But on the other hand, we can't just continue politics as usual with supporting the Democrats um, and knowing that in many cases we don't really get what we expect to get from them or trying to support Republicans, as even Colin Powell did, and then being dismissed and being disrespected in the way that he was. So it's just it's a difficult question, but it's one eventually that we're going to have to have uh, that debate in the black community about independent party politics. Should we pursue it? And if so, how should we pursue it? But are we even ready to have that conversation, Denise? I'm not sure if we're ready to actually begin to talk about looking to get behind a third-party candidate until we can get a a larger majority uh, of black folks to vote. Now, I know that we tend to get out and we tend to vote, but we do have a lot of members of our community that do not feel actually uh, in support of the fact that their voice is being heard. They feel their voice is not being heard, so they don't participate. Can we have that conversation around third parties before we get everyone voting? Hmm. Well, I mean, that's a difficult question, but I think with third-party candidates, they usually don't just rely on one race of voters. So if you have a black third-party candidate, that person is going to need support from a significant number of black voters, but that person probably is also going to have to put together a multiracial coalition and is going to have to get the support of Hispanic Latino voters, of Asian voters, and, uh, and even of, uh, of white voters who are willing to support him or her. So I think when you think about a third-party candidate, we can't just think about it as being just a candidate who only relies on the black vote because, as you said, we don't have the numbers to get that person elected. But I think sometimes we have to think about 
is that really the goal? Of course, we want our candidates to win, but if it means that we address a certain issue, is it worth it? Even if the candidate loses, is it worth it to have that candidate run and support that candidate if it means that we bring attention to certain issues? And so I would say in that case, in most cases, I would say the answer is yes. Well, Denise, let me ask you, we only have a few minutes left, and I'm going to ask you mm-hmm. and Dr. Austin the same question. Okay, so, again, assuming Donald Trump for the Republicans, mm-hmm. is it? do you think Kamala Harris, 2024, or do you think Joe Biden's going to run again? I know it's still kind of early, but would love to just get your ideas on, on what you see shaping up. Well, I think that as of right now, um, Joe Biden is probably going to run for a second term. And if he doesn't, he'll probably, you know, there'll, there'll probably be some movement toward um, Kamala Harris running. But what we have to remember is she's a woman. Mm-hmm. And if anyone remembers 2016 and the fact that the single most competent presidential candidate we've ever had um, lost to the host of Celebrity Apprentice, <laughs> we still have to deal with the fact that, you know, people don't like women in charge. And also, I'm hoping that in 2022 and in 2024, we focus more on Congress. Because let's face it, it doesn't matter who the president of the United States is. If you don't have a Congress that's willing to work with you to get legislation passed, to get what the American people need together, if you don't have a Congress that's willing to do that, you could be the most popular person in the world. You're not going to get anything done. Now, I have to stop you there. Denise Clay Murray, uh, what a pleasure having you on the show. Reporter, columnist, editor of Philadelphia Sunday Sun. Dr. Sharon Wright Austin, if you're able to stay with us after the break, quite a few people would like to hear your opinion on the question I just asked. So if you could stay with us okay. a little bit of time after the break, All right. answer that question, okay. and then we'll go into a bigger, broader conversation from there. Folks, it's Today with Dr. K. I'm Dr. K. Wise Whitehead. Stay with us for more after the break. 